Um, I got involved in a little bit of evangelism the other week. Um, I was at the airport, but in this case, I was the evangelizee, which is very unusual. So uh, I was sitting waiting to catch a plane, and there was a young girl, a couple of seats over from me, in conversation with an older woman. Then the other woman got up to take her line in the queue or whatever, and the young woman turned to me and asked me what I was doing, why I was flying to Melbourne. And so I, I told her what I was doing, and then I said, what about you, business or pleasure? And she said, both actually, I'm a missionary. That's fascinating. What, what missionary agency are you, are you with? And then she turned to me with, with a little badge on there that said, Sister, whatever her surname was, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, she said, do you know much about our church? And I said, actually, I know a great deal about your church. Um, and one of the things I know is that one of the base verses they have is, actually, can I get the clicker, Jason, for the... Thing, or is it, if that's difficult, you just, you just can do it for me if you want. Uh, well, one of the things I know, the base verse is uh, 2 Nephi 25, 23. For, I, for we know that it is by grace we are saved. Thanks. Comma. After all that we have done. So if I got in conversation with her and if she got in conversation with me, she would tell me the whole number of things that need to be done that go beyond just Jesus giving his life for us, us repenting and being baptised, etc. If I had a look at the list, there'd be a dozen things there. That's not unusual. There are a lot of churches that are like that. If I spoke to a Seventh-day Adventist person, they might say, yes, it's by grace that we're saved, but you also need to keep the Sabbath. That's really important. So I would refer to those as being grace plus churches. The grace of God plus something that we can add to that. Now I've got to say that there are lots of advantages. I grew up in a church like that and there are lots of advantages to a church like that. It really keeps people on their toes. There is not much idleness in those churches because they know that there's a certain amount of things that they need to do in order to be saved and to be in a good relationship with God. It tells you instantly who's in and who's out. You know that list of 12 things from the Mormon church, or it might be other churches that have a whole list. You can say, oh, I'm doing all those. Or that person isn't. So I know where I am. I'm up here. They're down there. So it can be quite nice. It appeals to the flesh. It appeals to our pride. So that girl, as it turned out, was a missionary. She was 19 years old. She came from the US. And there's an excuse to be in a Grace Plus church if you're born in one because that's all you know. And so that would seem to her to be it. But what about me? What sort of fool would I be to know the grace of God, as I've discovered over the last 30 years, to know that Jesus Christ died for my sins and there's nothing I can do to add to that if I was to accept a grace plus idea of the gospel? It would be like my, my pockets were full of gold and I'm exchanging them for gravel. Or I've got my Ferrari and I, I traded in for a Datsun 120Y. It'd be crazy, wouldn't it? Well, that's the situation that Paul finds himself in with the Galatians. Their pockets are half empty. The gold's half gone. They've already got half the gravel stuffed in there. And Paul is, Paul is wanting to draw their attention to the fact of this gospel or this good news that he'd preached to them before. Because they knew that Jesus had exchanged his life for theirs. 
they knew that a right standing before God, which the Bible refers to as righteousness, doesn't come through observing a list of laws, but it comes through hearing, through faith, hearing the word, the good news about Jesus Christ, believing and trusting in that. So Paul brings the Galatians up rather sharply. If you've got, I'd like you to open your Bibles or flip open your phone to Galatians chapter 3. Because you can understand, as you would understand, uh, you would be incredulous if I was to accept this gospel plus idea. Paul was shocked by them. And he says this, if I had my glasses, I know what it says anyway. You foolish Galatians, he says. You foolish Galatians. Imagine how we would feel if somebody that we respected got up here and that was their first line. Imagine Colin Dennis got up here and said, you idiots, you foolish people of hope. It would be like a slap in the face, wouldn't it? And that's what Paul is doing, trying to bring them to their senses. It's a bit like in the movies, you know when someone's going a bit crazy and you see someone in the movie go, ah, they're back to normality. That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying they're foolish because they're incapable of understanding. They're foolish because they're not using their proper reasoning faculties to think about, um, to think about what, they're, what they're doing and what they're accepting. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And that has the idea of, um, in those days, the evil eye. The idea was that someone had the evil eye, they'd put their eye on you, and you'd be fixed in their gaze and you'd lose all comprehension. Paul says, who's bewitched you? Who's put the evil eye on you? Before whose eyes, he said, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now snap out of it. Take your eyes off whatever you've got your eyes on and put them on Christ. He then goes on, and really where we're going, if I can flip to the next slide, seems to have gone off. Please pray with us Sunday mornings, Thursdays. Uh, two, two supporting arguments. So what he's, going to, what he's going to say is, first of all, their personal experience should tell them better. Secondly, he's going to take them through God's revelation in Scripture. He's going to take them through to something that's authoritative, which is God's word, to show, first of all, to affirm what Paul's gospel is, and second, to undercut this other gospel that they've had. And you know the history, you know this book of Galatians, you know in the first place he says, this gospel didn't come out of the blue, and I didn't get it from another man, I received this directly from Jesus Christ. And then when I finally did get to the apostles and the other guys in Jerusalem that knew something, they said, yep, you're on the right track. So now to that he adds their personal experience and what scripture says in terms of what they were exchanging, this grace plus idea. Because people were coming through and were saying, yes, grace is good, but don't forget, you need to do the same as our forefather Abraham, that original man of faith. Remember, he was circumcised, and it's important that you be circumcised. And maybe there are other aspects of the law you need to put, put together with that. And they weren't saying the gospel wasn't important, but what they were saying was, yeah, you need the gospel, but you need this as well. You might remember that uh, Elizabeth said in the first week, she quoted John Stott to say, you can't modify or supplement the gospel without radically changing its character. As soon as you add something or subtract it, it's not what it originally was. It's not the grace. It's not the good news about Jesus Christ. 
So let's look about how he develops that by asking them questions of their personal experience. He says from verse 2, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Paul doesn't ask this because he's interested in knowing. He knows what the answer is. These people are mostly non-Jews, so they haven't observed the law. Some of them may have you know, observed bits of the law, and there may be some Jews that have observed the law. But one thing you know for sure, Jew or non-Jew, none of them received the Spirit as they were just observing the law. He goes on to say, are you so foolish? He said, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Yes, that's what happened. Are you so foolish, he says again, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? And then again, another question. Does God give his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Again, that word work miracles in the Greek, it, it talks about constant supply. Some versions say, did he not supply you with the Spirit? It's an ongoing thing. They would have seen abundant evidence of the Spirit at work in those churches in Galatia. They would have seen healings, they would have seen miraculous signs, they would have had prophecy. And Paul's, Paul's saying, well, look around you. Where, where did that come from? Did it come from the law? Or did it come from the Spirit? Or did it come from hearing, faithful hearing of what was heard? And then he goes on to scripture. So their own experience should tell them it's the spirit that's important. It's not the flesh. You know, that's the, the story of the New Testament. It's not about the flesh. It's about the spirit. And then he takes them back to Abraham, this forefather of faith, this man of faith. And he says this, consider Abraham. He believed God. Here he's quoting from Genesis chapter 15. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed, he heard, he put faith, and so in his bank account was credited righteousness on the basis of that faith. He goes on to say then, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. It's not the flesh. It's not fleshly descendants of Abraham. It's all to do with this hearing and, and uh, exercising faith. And then he goes on to say something very interesting. That the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Again, quoting from Genesis chapter 12 this time, all nations will be blessed through you. So he says, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He develops this a bit further in, in Romans. They knew the story of Abraham very well. So in uh, Romans chapter 4, 9 to 11, the same guy, same guy who wrote the book of Galatians, wrote the book of Romans, and he said, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Well, was it after he was circumcised or before? You know the answer to that? He says, it was not after, but before, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. You can follow that, can't you? So the idea was that circumcision came after. 
he was credited with righteousness. It was not responsible for him being credited with righteousness. If you like, it was a work that came afterwards that was a result of his faith, but he says it was a seal upon the righteousness he already had. So clearly, Paul is saying that even back in Genesis, this was anticipated. And we remember Jesus saying, you know, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. God knew what he was going to do with Gentiles and he prophesied that. It's there in the Bible. And that is the authoritative word, isn't it? The Bible is the authoritative word. So not only Paul's revelation, not only the agreement of the apostles, but God's own word, the Old Testament, uh, would agree with that too. Then he goes on to talk about what it actually means and how Scripture not only affirms what he's saying, but actually undercuts what those people who had come in and wanted uh, to change it, the Grace Plus people, were saying. He says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written. Where is it written? In the Old Testament, in the Bible. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So if they knew this story, they would know that when the law was given to Israel, there was a blessing and a curse offered. A blessing to those who kept the law, a curse to those who did not observe the law. And just like any group of laws, you don't get to be called a good man if you observe 50% of the laws in Tasmania or 75% of the laws. You don't get to be called law-abiding. So what the Bible tells us is that if you break one law, you've broken the law. And Paul says in that case, you're under a curse. So if you want to take the law upon you, well, remember you have to live up to every precept of the law, every sacrifice, everything that's mentioned there in the law. So clearly, he says, no one is justified before God by the law because, again, quoting Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Again, in the Old Testament, this has been laid bare, even though they didn't understand it at the time. The righteous live by faith. The law is not based on faith, he says. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, again in the law, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So what Paul is saying is the very law points to Christ and Christ took on the curse. We cannot obey the law. It doesn't matter whether it's the, the law of Moses or any other high value law that you might want to put. We cannot live up to it in our human nature. And so we're under a curse. But Paul says, and he underscores the gospel, Jesus took that curse. The, the law says anyone hung on a tree is cursed. Jesus was hung on a tree, on a cross, and he has taken that curse upon himself. And now it's through faith, believing that word that we are saved and not through these other works. He finishes off by saying, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, that, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Spirit, very important to Paul. I think it's mentioned about 16 times uh, after that, the difference between the flesh and the Spirit. We can't start in the Spirit and finish in the flesh. We need to walk in the Spirit as he goes on to talk about. This grace is a huge subject. I reckon my bookshelves are groaning under books about grace. And the grace, as Jordan said um, last week, and Jordan looks up, a bit worried there. I'm not going to reference the Kmart incident, although 
arguments you're having with your wife. But no, oh, disagreements, that's right. Jordan talked about discussing with his Baha'i friend about grace and, um, and Jono saying, well, if God makes us good, even though we're not good, what's the advantage in being good? Why would, why would we do that? And the, 2,000 years before, in Romans, they're saying the same thing. They're saying, well, God is so graceful. My sin means that he looks good because his grace is abundantly poured out on me. Well, if I sin more, he's going to provide more grace. That's going to make God look better. And Paul says, no, you've got the total wrong idea. But that's an idea that we might call cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to cheap grace as being the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. I was in Melbourne uh, recently, well, you know, because I was on that, being evangelised on the way, but when I got there, um, I, was, I went to a seminar on marriage, pre-marriage counselling, and the guy was up there, and he, he was an older guy, and he said he'd done 500 to 600 marriages. But he said, what I've noticed in more recent times is Christian couples coming to me to get married who are already living together. And he said, sometimes I don't know, I just look at the forms, I get the forms in, and they've got the same address. So I, I said to him, so how do you approach that? So he mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, he had a couple, a, um, a, a guy and his uh, fiancée. The man was in a leadership position at his church and if he found out they were living together. So, so the celebrant just said, how do you reconcile your Christian faith with the way that you're living? And the guy said, that was cool. Like, God's cool with it, he knows I'm committed. Uh, it's, very, it's a very practical arrangement, all good. And then he turned to the fiancé and said, how do, you, how do you feel? And she just started crying. A feeling of, of guilt, something not being right. The fact is that the Christian faith and grace has an ethical component. It leads to ethical behaviour. And when we get to chapters 5, and chapter 6, you'll see that Paul says that very clearly. And you know, the Bible calls uh, living together before marriage, it calls that immorality. And in, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, people who do that won't inherit the kingdom. But he says, those who walk in the spirit don't follow the desires of the flesh. You won't be one of those people if you're walking in the spirit. And so the grace of God motivates one to not uh, accept this grace and not understand what it is, but to actually draw close to God, to have his Holy Spirit um, talking to you, to, to be moulded by the Spirit and to be um, changed. So what that, that young man was doing maybe thought that he was in freedom, but the Bible says it's actually slavery. Because what you're doing is you're returning to something fleshly. You're, you're returning to the desires of your flesh. You're not walking in the Spirit at all. I think uh, Gordon Fee had a great line, I thought. He said, we are lawless, as in the Mosaic law or any law, we are lawless but not lawless. That's true, isn't it? We're not bound by those rules, but there's a law inside us, there's a freedom inside us, a freedom to do God's will, a freedom for the Spirit to work in us, 
to purify us, to make us like the God who is holy. So if you're a person that's kind of up that end of the spectrum, what do you do? Well, it'd be a great place to actually confess that before God. It would be great to read ahead to Galatians chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 6 and see what it is to walk in the Spirit. It would be great to lay down a life before the Holy Spirit and say, mould me and change me, convict me, because that's what's needed. And maybe those people need to live a little more in the Old Testament. Because, you know, if you live in the Old Testament a bit, you get an idea of the holiness of God. It's clear in the New Testament too. But the Old, Old Testament spells it out very clearly. And as you read the New Testament, read those ethical considerations. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum can be someone who accepts grace intellectually, but is preoccupied with their shortcomings. Just every morning thinking, what a, what a miserable person I am. They don't so much boldly run into the, to the throne of grace. They go there with stooped shoulders and haltingly and not sure how they're going to be received. These are people who live in the Old Testament. They love the Old Testament. They love the curses of the Old Testament. They love the harshness of the Old Testament because it, it, it's what they feel inside about themselves anyway. They love the verse that talks about denying yourself, picking up your cross and denying yourself. They concentrate on that. They don't feel so much that the yoke of Christ is kindly and light. So that's, that's at the other spectrum of this whole grace thing. So what do, they, what do they need? They need to do what Jordan was talking about last week. I'm not sure that he demonstrated in a Joel Osteen posture to say, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Because this is objective truth. That's what Paul appealed to. It's what we know. This is God's truth. Regardless of what we feel about ourselves, that is the truth. We are washed clean. We are sanctified. We are righteous in the eyes of God. We are credited with righteousness just as Abraham was. He loves us as his children. He's adopted us into his family. He doesn't see those awful things that we see in ourselves. He sees us through the prism of Christ. He sees us as pure and undefiled. That's pure, pure objectivity. That's hard for some people to take. It may be hard for you to take. Maybe you've never been loved in your life before. And you think, who would, who would love me? God loves you. He says he loves you that much that he sent his only son. He says he, he counts the hairs on your head. He said you're worth much more than many sparrows. He loves you. You may have been a person that's never been accepted. You're always on the outside. People, you're the last person to get picked for the sports team. People at work, they tend to talk to you and your family or a bit on the outside. You're accepted in Christ. You're accepted by us, by the family of God. You have acceptance through Jesus Christ. You may have committed a grave sin in your life. You might be thinking about that now. And you think, no one else knows about this sin. It is so bad. I feel bad about it every day. The fact is that sin, as repentance and faith mean in the, in the blood of Jesus Christ, means that's washed clean. 
that's gone. It never happened. Can you accept that? Because that's the objective word of God. That's his message to you. It's like it never happened. Some people feel guilt over things, and it seems strange to us who have not experienced this. But you know, children who have experienced um, sexual abuse, they'll feel some level of guilt in something they had no control over, no complicity. You are accepted and clean and washed clean. There is no guilt. Not even your implied guilt or four-year-old or five-year-old or six-year-old guilt. It's wiped away because of the blood of Christ. But still, there is sin. Sin, still sin exists. If we agree there are those, those two extremes, those who presume on the grace of Christ and those who don't presume on the grace of Christ. They're like those, you will have heard the illustration of the, the old woman carrying a heavy burden, walking along the side of the road and being picked up by a car. I'll give her a lift into town, that'll make it easier for her. And she gets in and after 15 minutes, you know, she's still carrying the, the heavy load. She needs to let that go. That's what it's like with us. We need to let that go with Christ. I've been getting some John White lately. Has anyone heard of John White? Famous author, now deceased. Old people know, like Colin there. John White was a missionary in uh, Bolivia. Um, had five children there, a bit like Simon and Lucinda. So that's some, some precedent for them. Um, then he came back and he trained as a psychologist. And then he wrote a number of books. So I really love him for the fact that he knows the Bible really well. Um, committed to, to the Word of God, knows people very well, like human nature, very well through being a psychologist, and someone who's committed, someone who ends up being a missionary, they're not a... We wouldn't describe them as a pew-sitter, would we? They're people who love God and willing to put their life on the line for him. So everything he says I, I take seriously. He talks about two voices, a bit similar to like Jordan was talking last week about um, you know, schizophrenia and different voices coming in and out. He identifies two, and he says... In your life, there'll be two voices that will be talking to you about sin. One will be Satan, the accuser, and he'll be accusing you of sin. And the, his idea is to break your relationship with Christ. That's his desire. So you wake up in the morning and he's the guy that will be telling you, you know, are you sure you deserve to be here? He's the guy that will say, when you do a good deed... You know, you thought that was a good deed, but what were you really thinking? I think you were really thinking about how that looks good to other people. So you're not really good at all. He's the one that'll be saying, you know, you're in there in church with all those nice people. If they really knew what you were like, they would have nothing to do with you. you you're nothing. That's the voice of the accuser in our heads. And the Bible says that's defeated through the blood of Christ. On the other hand, there will be another voice which is a convicting voice from the Holy Spirit which will be saying things about the sin in your life. But what's his purpose? His purpose is to bring you closer to Christ. His purpose is to bring you into a closer relationship with Jesus through ridding yourself of those sins and the ways that um, you know, you're, you're outside the will of God. And so he likens it. It's a really nice illustration, I think, We've got the picture up there. He likes to do a bit of sailing. Oh. Here we are. 
So he says, and he talks about um, learning to, to trust in the blood of Jesus Christ rather than, he says, my yieldedness to God. Because that goes up and down, my understanding of how far I've yielded. Have, have I done the right thing? Have I not done the right thing? But rather to trust in what Jesus has already done. And he said, I haven't arrived at perfect sanctification. What has happened is that I've begun an ongoing learning process. The nearest thing I can compare it to is learning to sail. And he talks about taking his little boat out on the river, on the lake. He said, we sail it out on a lake where the wind is gusty and veers frequently. I've capsized as many as 10 times in a single sail, but I'm learning. It's something like learning to ride a bicycle in the middle of an earthquake, yet somehow I'm beginning to harmonise with wind and water and sail. And if I'm flung overboard as I capsize, I right the boat, get in again and sail on. I'm covered from head to foot with bruises. But who cares? I'm becoming a sailor. In the same way I'm learning about holiness, at one time it was only in shame and humiliation that I went back to the cross for forgiveness. The humiliation included a lot of self-conceit. Now I go back gladly. It's the basic manoeuvre of holy living. Now, bruised and breathless, I scramble aboard my righted boat and sail on, praising my Redeemer. I'm learning to sail. I'm learning to be holy. A new awareness of God's grace and compassion is affecting me. While it doesn't make sin seem, more le seem less sinful, it has changed my whole attitude to conviction. Formerly, when convicted, I would react with discouragement. That's what we've been talking about this morning. Now I praise God. Thank you for telling me, Lord, is my grateful and spontaneous reply. How good of you to keep telling me. I've discovered that the Holy Spirit is like a sailing instructor quickly pointing to my faults so I might learn faster and capsize less frequently. More than this, the grace of his spirit's conviction makes continuous fellowship with him easier. He doesn't convict to condemn me, but to draw me back to himself. That makes for a moment-to-moment -moment fellowship with God, which is indescribably precious. I might forget him for hours, but when I remember, I marvel that he still pursues me and draws me back into that loving communion again. That's the spirit of God. Let me, um, let me pray. And I'll pray too for that young um, Mormon girl, her name's Adriana. I left her with a little hope card that I had with a contact, and Romans 10, 9 and 10. It's, through, it's that simple, isn't it? Confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That's faith, and faithful adherence to him. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's what Paul, that's why it was so, so um, intense in getting the Galatians to understand that. Don't ever fall for grace plus. Father, we... We are so grateful for the same thing that Paul was grateful for, that he, a sinner, should be approached by you and then be brought into communion with you, a righteous and holy God. We understand the great gulf that exists between us and there are times of discouragement as we fail, but we thank you that your Holy Spirit is there 
to right our boat, to help us back in and to sail on in your will. Father, we thank you that your spirit will convict us of sin with the purpose of building a relationship with you. That's what we want. We want to get closer and closer to you. So if there's something there today, Father, I pray that you would have every individual come to grips with those things and see them not as condemning, but as something that is bringing them into a closer relationship with you. I pray for Adriana. I pray that she's only a young girl, but I pray that she'll meet other Christians, that she'll come across your word in other places, that your spirit would touch her and release her from a grace plus type of life. There are millions of people in those kind of places. Father, we pray for them to deliver them. For those who um, are just treat your grace as of no worth and continue to sin in violation of that, Father, convict them of this sin. Help them understand who you are. If they don't know you, Father, we pray they will come to know you. And for those of us who struggle with our own faults and our own failings, Father, help us to see the blood of Christ, which um, cleanses us of all sin. Help us to see our place as sanctified, anointed children of yours. All of these things are great promises, uh, but they've, they've been fulfilled. We have the deposit here inside us that one day we'll see the consummation where we'll be with you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.